What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the talent, the one that we have been training for podcasts for nigh on 12 years at this point to give you this prize quality product that we deliver every week. Mr. Travis Croft, how are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. 12 years, you get less for manslaughter. Um, <laughs> and you'd think we'd be getting it right by now, wouldn't you, after 12 years? But here we are. Here hey. we are. We are still doing it the way we've always done it, and that's why all you Russian bots out there uh, continue to tune in on a weekly basis and find out about all things that are fit to print about Suburban Commando. Look, um, what I what I value as as a manager in retail over the ease of being able to just celebrate momentary excellence is consistent reliability. And that's what we are. We're consistently reliable, and you know exactly what level of product you're going to get every single week. <laughs> this is true. Um, that is um, some weasel words there, you know, like... <laughs> You know, the Nazis, they had their flaws, but you knew what you were going to get from there. <laughs> That's why they are consistently the best villain in all movies. All films. Until recently, like, I remember when that Doom game came out about five or six years ago. The, the, not Doom, sorry. Uh, Wolfenstein. The reboot of Wolfenstein. And they're like, oh, all of a sudden it's fine to kill people because they've got different ideas. And they, Bethesda were like, but they're Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, Pete Hines from um, Bethesda came out and said, like, it's okay to kill them. They're fucking Nazis. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah, I don't that remember that. Open shut case right there. I don't remember having a problem when the Wolf original Wolfenstein 3D came out. People were getting up in arms like, oh, no, wish somebody please think of the Nazis. <laughs> so, like, um, I think that this is culturally inappropriate to have Hitler in a cyber suit. Sorry. It was uh, historically inaccurate. Painting the Nazis with a brush they didn't deserve. deserve it, no. He wouldn't have worn a suit like that. It would have been a lot more stylish. <laughs> probably would have been designed by Hugo Boss or something. That's true, by the way. You That's, can Google that. That is, that is true. Hugo Boss designed SS uniforms. Yeah. That's not what we're here to talk about. We're no. not here to talk about uh, radical politics and get ourselves <laughs> in trouble like that. Um, quite happy for that not to happen this week. Uh, what is on the show though? We've got a so we've got a big show this week. We have got a big show, yeah. We have got our chain movie of the week, of course. Hashtag chain movie. Um, we are following on from last week's three-hour sketchbook of a Paul Thomas Anderson movie for all his future releases, Magnolia, going and following William H. Macy to the equal 1999 movie, Mystery Men. Travis takes the wheel and chooses the next link in the chain. I made sure to put in some effort this week with, with viewings. So I've got a few things. There's the finale of Rings of Power. I, I did The Nyan Impossible, and I finished season one of She-Hulk. I think you deserve a round of applause. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I know, I know that uh, many of you out there wondered whether it was do doable, whether it was possible. And I, for, for a long time throughout like, every minute, every second that went past, I wondered if I could do it too. But I kept on going, man. I just thought of king and country. That's, that's a <laughs> saying again. Just lie back and think of England. <laughs> um, I also smashed in um, animated movie. 
um, called The Bad Guys, based on a children's book series, and got around to watching Hocus Pocus 2 on Disney+. Plus. Meanwhile, we have got Travis going to talking about the godfather of the show, Kevin Smith's latest movie, the third in the Clerks trilogy, which, again, sounds like a weird thing to say, Clerks 3, as well as two years ago, Oscar Darling? Yeah, so it's a, it's, it, it'll be an interesting, uh, an interesting year now because I pretty much watched mm. them back to back. Mm. Parasite, ladies and gentlemen, the movie that Donald Trump questioned for having best movie and not best foreign movie. Still think that's just stupid. Um, well, and... it came out of Trump's mouth. I mean, <laughs> seriously, it could go without saying it was fucking stupid. Roses grow out of shit, sir. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> and, of course, we have got the thing that ties the whole show together. The thing that is the reason why five out of seven Russian bots approve of us. It is the return of the Trek Respective. The final. The finale of the Trek Respective. It's the last one. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we, there could be a replacement on the horizon. I'm not going to give anything away. Ooh, teasers worthy of the MCU, ladies and gentlemen. Now, that is a big show, so shall we get straight crack into on, it? Crack on. Mystery Men, the yes. suggestion this week, from 1999, mm -hmm. uh, starring Ben Stiller, Janine Garofalo, William H. Macy, Hank Azaria, Paul Rubens, Greg Kinnear, Jeffrey Rush, Eddie Izzard, Claire Fulani, Praz Michael, Tom Waits, Ricky Jay. Another connection to last week's film. Mm -hmm. um, but our official connection was William H. Macy, if I'm correct. Yes. Uh, directed by Kinka Usher, who went on to do, went straight back to commercials and has never directed a feature ever again. Mm. What made you pick yeah. Mystery Men? Why did I pick it? It was one of those movies that I had fond memories of growing up because it was alternative to what we were receiving in the late 90s for superhero movies it um had a lot of the trappings of it you look at the costumes that they make for it and the um the quality and absurdity of the special effects going on into it the fact that it's a star-studded cast it was kind of it seemed on the surface to be your typical late 90s superhero movie mold movie but the fact that it's about a group of bad superheroes and not even B-class superheroes. These are D-class superheroes from a group in the comics that is run by the Flaming Carrot. How are you not going to be interested in that? And I wanted to go back, considering the years of overall good quality superhero movies that we've had go back to a time when it was a bit more of the Wild West in the superhero genre and see if it still stands up or if it's better or if it has gotten worse. Um, quick review. I think it's stayed the same. Have you watched this before? I have watched this a couple of times before. I remember mm. it coming out of a time. And I think the most memorable thing about it at the time was, frankly, the Smash Mouth song. Um, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, right? The Smash Mouth song was huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a you smash hit all over the world. It's still a very, very popular song today, played on the radio a lot. Um, and that was, uh, I don't know what, I mean, it certainly went, it was in the charts here. It was something you heard all the time on the radio. Mm -hmm. Um, back then, I used to live in a share house. We had the 
cable TV and had the music channel, which being, you know, 20-ish, we all used to watch a lot of. Mm-hmm. And that film clip had stuff from they film stars of a movie were in the film clip and yeah. clips of a movie. And so that was pretty much all you saw about Mystery Men, you know, because it didn't kind of sank with uh sank beneath the waves awfully quickly without much of a much of a gurgle at the time. Yeah. It, was a, it was a real flop. I recall it made about 30 million on a 60 million dollar budget-ish. Yeah. Um and but I, um, when you you know I think, it, I think it found its home as with so many of these films on VHS initially and then you know DVD. Yeah, um, and when you saw it, you're like, "Actually, I like this. This is funny." Um, the cast, as you, as you noticed, well, we noted earlier, was is, is excellent. They are mm-hmm. all, I think, excellent, excellently cast. I mean, Jeffrey Rush was a fantastic choice. We're a villain with one of the best villain names ever. I mean, Casanova, Frankenstein. It's great, you know. Um, Greg Kinnear is a smarmy Captain. Amazing is brilliant. Everyone's yep. fantastic in this movie, and it's really tight, it's written, and really funny. And mm-hmm. the amusing thing is, um, this was the only superhero movie that came out apparently in 1999. I was watching the Joe Blow What the Fuck Happened to This Movie video, and they claim it's the only superhero movie from 1999. Don't mm-hmm. come at me, I'm wrong, go after Joe Blow. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of crazy, right? In hindsight, this is the only movie that came out that year. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's better most of the superhero movies that were coming out at the same time. This is, what, a year or two after Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. Um, it reused sets in those Batman films. Mm-hmm. Um, and it used them better. This is actually a decent superhero movie. It looks pretty good. Yeah. I mean, if, 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 today the effects hold up pretty well. Um, because and- they're, they're intelligently produced cgi things the the world the production value of the the sets and the costumes and the way that it's filmed they marry nicely with what cgi they were able to get so no matter the age of the movie because the cgi effect was designed to fit in with that world the the real world that they were filming in it fits really nicely unlike so many things like she-Hulk, where the CGI is clearly done after the after the fact, and it's not considering the how it looks in the real world. It's going to age badly, much like the um, the prequel trilogy Star Wars movies, Jar Jar Binks, for example. It's well thought out in every level, and it's a wacky world. It's kind of a crazy stylized universe. You open um, up with a granny. It's almost um, it's it's almost and they've, they've taken bits of the '60s Batman, you know, the gangs like they all have a theme, like they all have a red eye gang where a not so goody mob, and you know the frat boys and the suits and with the, with, the, with the cameo of Michael Bay. Michael Bay, that. can we bring the Brewskis? Uh, yes. yes, of course. You, you may can bring things to Bruce. To Bruce Gears. I love that. This <laughs> um, Jeffrey Rush is fantastic in this way. He's absolutely oh, chewing the scenery and he's doing mm-hmm. it wonderfully well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have that sort of wacky, otherworldly sort of feet vibe that you get from those sixties Batman shows. But interesting because that was what Joel Schumacher was trying to um, distill mm. into his, well, at least Batman and Robin, and to a degree, Batman Forever. He mm. failed miserably. Yeah. Um, and but that kind of wacky work, that kind of wacky otherworldly quality and the crazy mm-hmm. costumes and the crazy characters, the sort of bargain rate CGI 
was done well enough. Yeah. Kind of fits. You don't need AAA CGI when I'm not being sold a AAA, you know, super serious superhero exactly. world. It's it's funny. It's silly. They, uh, they the bad guys. Eddie Izzard plays a a disco theme, you know, heavy. It's going uh, not dead. It's going <laughs> life. And it's and it's and it's crazy, but it's funny and it works. So it really still looks pretty good. Um, I absolutely agree with you of um, sort of like instilling some of that Adam West Batman kind of feel, feel to it. But there's also a very healthy dose of like Terry Gillingham inspired set design and understanding of the absurd throughout the whole thing. So like the Herkimer battle jetney and the, the junker and the, the buildings that are all there, the kind of pseudo Blade Runner-esque kind of cafe. Yeah, there was Blade made. Runner vibes in that. But it's yeah. Interesting. But like I said, they reuse sets, I think, from Batman Forever. Yeah. And it's interesting that they've kind of twisted them around and made it look more like Blade Runner than it did Gotham City. Yeah. And it, it was really kind of uh, revitalizing for for the for the movie especially as you watch it and you kind of go you know what this 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 city actually kind of makes sense it feels organic and not planned and it it just makes the idea of a city having all of these just stupid levels of stupid superheroes like the waffler and pencil head and things like that. Like... Ballerina man. <laughs> I can um, imagine these things being there. You know, you know what it actually, from a more modern perspective, reminded me of? I mm. think a TV show like The Boys owes a great debt to this show. Um, mm. You think of the idea of corporately sponsored superheroes yeah. and almost tiered levels of superheroes, which we, we yeah. pick up in The Boys. You think about, is it The Hawk? In the most recent series, Blue Hawk, um, yeah. who you get who I'm not going to tell what happens because someone may not have watched it, who, who mm. is an antagonist of sorts in the most recent season. Mm-hmm. He's sort of a low rent, low level superhero from Cleveland or something, and you know he's a the exactly. level of the seven. Um, well, with no means as as gruesome uh, or a, a, as um, cynical as the boys mm. is, um, it, but that that sort of twist on the idea of, of how superheroes might operate in the real world mm. is was I think it's the first time I'd seen it done. Yeah. Um and I know it's kind of a cliche now and again if you anyone watches a Joe Blow video mentions the same thing. Mm. This movie felt like it was made 20 years too early. Yeah. Yeah. If this film came out today it would be so much more relevant mm-hmm. uh in the sense of like we are overloaded with superhero films. So yeah. we're in line for a good superhero satire. They are few and far between. There aren't. I mean, the boys is that satire. It's he's a dark. He's very dark for a satire, yeah. but maybe it's a black comedy in parts. But other than that, I can't think of a whole lot of great superhero satires of late. I mean, there was the superhero movie by the Abrams group, not not JJ Abrams, but the um, you know the ones that did uh, like scary movie and things like that. They they branched off and did so many of them, like they did Epic Movie and Disaster yeah. Movie and all that stuff. That was just trash. This is actually intelligently done knowing the value of its source material and knowing the target of that source material and how to deliver that in a movie. But before we keep talking, 
let's do the unusual and tell them the synopsis. Yeah, we probably should have done this 10 minutes ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, a, a group of inept amateur superheroes must try to save a day when their supervillain friends destroy a major superhero in the city. So we meet the uh, titular mystery man who don't actually get that name until the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Furious, played by mm-hmm. Ben Stiller, who only gets get really, really angry and then nothing happens. Uh, William H. Macy, the shoveler, who goes around hitting people with a shovel. The Blue Rajah, played by uh, Hank Azaria, who he dresses like an Indian, a, a parody of what an Indian person might look like as per what the Brits in the 60s might have thought. And he flings, he, he flings forks at people. Uh, later, they are joined by uh, the spleen, uh, the flatulent spleen as the um, plot that uh, says here on um, INDB, who basically has lethal farts, yep. uh, played by Paul Rubens, played very well by Paul Rubens, mm-hmm. um, and the bowler, uh, played by Janine Garofalo, who has a haunted bowling ball mm-hmm. uh, as a weapon, and Invisible Boy, played by Kel Mitchell, who can turn invisible as long as no one's watching him, n- not even himself. <laughs> Um, which is very funny. And I guess you could say an unofficial member is the uh, philosophizing Sphinx, played by Wes Judy. Yes. You yes. do not control your powers. Your powers will control you. <laughs> uh, and the Captain Amazing, who is the uh, preeminent superhero in town, in mm-hmm. Champion City, mm-hmm. um, is uh, he's losing sponsors because all the good supervillains are now either dead or behind bars. And he uh, concocts a plot to have he one of his um, nemeses released from prison. Played by Jeffrey Rush, Casanova Frankenstein, released from prison, so he can have uh, a, he can battle him again and potentially up his stock mm-hmm. and get you know, more publicity, increase his sponsors, etc. Doesn't go to plan. He's no. captured, and the mystery men set out to. Uh, rescue him despite their uh, um, ineptitude and uh, lack of qualification to do so. <laughs> um, initially, this was going to be written, directed by Ben Stiller. Uh, he decided he didn't want to do that. Had to be talked back into coming on board. Uh, and he probably he probably is our and our protagonist, main protagonist. Yeah. Very, uh, but it was probably more of an ensemble piece. Mm-hmm. Um, his relationship with Claire Fulani, I feel like, was going to take up more time on the screen. I think that got cut. Mm. Um, well, according to the on. according to the notes, they were flirting with the idea of there being a bit of a love tri- triangle with um, the bowler as well. And you kind of still have little inklings of that. Their their arguments is like, I don't know, do I? I don't know, do you? Do I? Do you? And it's that kind of love hate kids in playground punching each other instead of saying i like you kind of thing but mm. <laughs> well, it's very amusing that the um uh, this paul ruben spleen's attempts to kind of crack onto a bowler only to get no 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 there's not enough alcohol in the world um <laughs> he's paul ruben is a great scene in this film where paul rubens is standing in front of a, a flaming oil drum which momentarily flames up behind him and says Excuse me. Um, <laughs> the thing is, the crazy thing is when you read about it is that was a mistake. Someone threw a lighter in there and it exploded. Yeah. He just in the moment improv that. Yeah. Um, and, and, that, that was... and I would be, I don't, I wonder how much of this got that improv treatment. I guess sort of said, go into a mm. room and try things. Actually, mm. maybe not so much now that I think about it. The fact that Kinka Usher, the director, was a first time, a straight out of commercials. 
Mm. Um, and apparently had a really fucking bad time making this. Apparently all had a bad time making this. Yeah. At one point, Ben Stiller tried to withdraw from the film. Uh, he was having such a bad, after an argument with Greg Kinnear about something. It's interesting. Sometimes those sort of films end up looking really awful. You can sort of see the bad mm. blood on the screen through, you know, this doesn't work. But Other this one's times you have vibes. And it just works. It's a vibe. You're talking about the film vibes? Yes. I, I don't know. It, did they have a bad time making that? I don't remember. I don't, I don't know, but they didn't like each other. <laughs> um, but this one just works. Um, mm. And uh, it's it's actually really hilarious. Like my, I'm going to mention it last week. My favorite scene in the entire film is, so spoilers for a 23-year-old film, <laughs> uh, is the scene where they finally locate Captain Amazing in Fra- Casanova Frankenstein's hideout. And they're trying <laughs> to free him from... This um, device they've got to be trapped in, and it's like, okay, flip a toggle. He's like, which one again? How many toggle flips are involved in this entire process? And uh, it was just, Seven. it's just really, really like, I, I, it's still, it's still laugh out loud funny today. Yeah. Um, and I, I think this film's an absolute winner. Yeah. Like, if you I, haven't seen it, yeah, check it out today. It's, it's still, I think, the funniest superhero satire that has been made i think that um deadpool owes a lot to this movie as well the just that kind of knowing absurdity that self-referential um element to it like with the first time they go to try and break into frankenstein's thing and the so like the disco boys come out and they all pull guns and things like that and the mystery men just start laughing at this. Like, oh, is that your power? A pistol? <laughs> it's like, what are you? The, the disco plumber? <laughs> they just get beaten down. And you mentioned earlier how smartly written it was. And this film's got some great writing. Mate. I, I did enjoy it. My, my favorite scene is the toggle flip scene. But my fa- I noticed, well, I noticed a couple of things with dialogue this time around. One, my favorite line in the film from the mm. shoveler when he's driving a, uh, they, they fit out a tank type thing to raid the, uh, the, the Casanova Frankenstein's house. And he has one of the best lines I've ever heard in any film ever. We've got a blind date with Destiny and it looks like she's ordered the lobster. <laughs> <laughs> and I, what I, which is a great line. And I had never noticed before two references to William Shatner and Star Trek in this film. Um, at one point, uh, Furious says to someone, don't correct me, it sickens me, which is, is, a, is a Shatner reference. <laughs> That's right. It is. And the other one is a conversation between him and the bowler about, she says, sabotage. No, I say sabotage. Well, I say sabotage. <laughs> and that is a reference to the same Shatner conversation, um, which I had to explain to Michelle uh, recently when we watched Star Trek for the first time. And uh, why they was Beastie Boys song was such a big deal in that song, but um, more on that later. Um, <laughs> One of my favorite lines is where they go to Invisible Boy's, Invisible Boy's house, and <laughs> the Invisible Boy just shouts to his dad, "Hey, Dad, I'm going to my room with three strange men." <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's a really, it's a funny, funny movie. Um, it's really beautifully written and. It doesn't have a major movie star. I guess Bill Ben Stiller was the biggest it's, star it's in it. The after there's something about Mary. So. Mary, yeah, he was probably the biggest star in it. But yeah, you know, um, it's so many incredible performances and actors in this who are maybe not household names, but they probably should be. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're definitely faces that you kind of recognise. I mean, Hank Azaria has got a little controversy around him because of. 
um, the developments of the Apu character from The Simpsons, um, which he voiced for a long time. Um, but he's also kind of a name that people seem to know. William H. Macy has appeared in so many things. Um, ben Stiller obviously is still a standout, but Jeffrey Rush, I think, is the one whose legacy is kind of still fantastic because the level of scenery uh, chewing that he does in this, it is, this is probably the thing that got him <laughs> um, uh, Captain Barbosa in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies because he's just delightful as a bad guy. He's so engaging. But that said, though, probably of all the actors in this film, He's the one whose legacy has been the most tarnished by the uh, Well, uh, he he successfully won the case. He, he won the case, but so suppose you don't know he was he was he was um, accused of inappropriate uh, behaviour towards a co-star in a production of King Lear in mm. Australia. Uh, I think he nudded up in front of her or something. Don't quote me. I don't. You can find the stories out there but he sued them for defamation and won mm. um now i am not a funnily enough i'm not a lawyer but when you hear some of his shit that was tested the judge said yeah he probably did it but it's defamation anyway i'm like what um so i don't want to get sued by jeffrey rush and yeah. he does live here in melbourne so he could find me and um <laughs> i will find you <laughs> so um let's just say it was controversial Mm. Uh, and you know you don't see a whole lot of him anymore. Mm. Yeah, he's definitely stepped away from the public eye. Um, but every time he's on screen, it's just electric. And I don't even mean that as a pun. It's like I killed my own men. <laughs> it's, it's I. Just, I... This was a great. This was a real treat. This was a mm. real treat this week, and uh, I I enjoyed going back and watching it again. Mm -hmm. And you wish it about years, twenty years of context to see what superhero films have gone on to become. Mm. Um, you know, you, I, I wonder if this might have been a bigger hit if it was released now. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, it's such a shame, but I also think that there is definite scope especially how deep cuts the mcu is going with their own catalog of stuff and every streaming service wanting to have their superhero or super powered brand on board um someone's gonna pick up the mystery man at some point well, there's, talk, there's been whispers of a sequel um yeah. apparently ben Steeler was been asked about it not so long ago and he said he'd be up for it Mm. Um, you know, I mean, so he's not, he's still a big name. Um, mm. so if you could get Ben Stiller back, but you mean most of those guys are still alive, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. so you could put together a dandy. I mean, I'm not saying you should make a sequel, but could. you could. Mm -hmm. Um, and would it be any good? Who knows? Don't but know. it, could, it could happen, but you're right. It's yeah. a name, it's got it's got a cult following over the last 23 years. Mm -hmm. And you know, its cast would still be reasonably recognizable. Yeah, you stick, yeah. you'd probably go out and hire somebody else to be maybe you would, maybe you would put the flaming carrot in it this time. Well, yeah, I mean, that especially considering how 
on and off people keep on trying to do ghost rider and getting him and the fact that the flaming carrot is a straight up parody rip of ghost rider for the absurdity alone it's like yeah you could definitely do something fun with that and if someone was able to do that before ghost rider actually comes into the mcu that would be a nice little poke in the eye of disney for sure have, have they cast him yet i don't know but um mm. those who are uninitiated i recommend the nicholas cage ones they are kind of crap <laughs> but uh especially the second one's pretty awful but um you know they're still good quality Nicolas cage material if you know what i mean right the first one at the very least is cromulent Cromulent's uh, the right way it was shot here in melbourne so there's yeah. that um, um technically even though they are do still seem to keep trying to delete it um the uh shield show that did have uh, Robbie Reyes as um, Ghost Rider. So that's the most recent one that I can find so far. Yeah. Well, you're right. Who knows? Anyway, yeah. so should we? Have you got anything more you'd like to say about Mystery Men? No, no. I think half an hour of spouting on about how delightful this movie is. I think that's more than enough. Where are you taking us this time? Because. I think you've got one or two good escape routes. Oh, I've got a multitude of escape hatches. Mm -hmm. I mean, one could follow Tom Waits, who's been on the soundtrack for 200 different films, mm -hmm. um, but we're not we, following We Tom didn't Waits. even talk about Tom Waits in this Who movie. was reading his lines off his fingers, so that's why he talks to his... <laughs> it refocuses the tributary. <laughs> He's good in this, wasn't he? Um, yeah. So, but we're not. We nope. are not. We are not following Tom Waits. We are trying to follow Claire Fulani. Oh, okay. And we have, I found when I, if I came down to two options here for Claire Fellani for me. Mm. The first option was Police Academy, Mission to Moscow, Police Academy. Okay. <laughs> but no, we are not watching Thank Police you. Academy, Mission to Moscow. Instead, we're going to revisit something again I have seen before, but not for a very long time. And okay. it's on brand for today's show. We're going to go back and we're going to watch more rats in 1995. Which he played great. Ah. I don't think I've seen more rats in 20 years. So, and makes continuing that trend we've had over the last few weeks of revisiting stuff and seeing how they yeah. hold up. More rats, I remember thinking initially, being the Kevin Smith fans, I, I was <laughs> being a significantly weaker film than Clerks. Agreed. And not, not liking it very much at the time. Mm. But I've subsequently found out it's very, very fondly remembered by other Kevin Smith fans. Mm. It, as a seven on IMDb, uh, it has now got a sequel on its way. Um, apparently, that's right. Yeah, more more rats. Uh, what's it called? She's going to be in that too, by the way. More Twilight of More Rats, uh, and Cl uh, Claire Fulani and most of the gang are coming back for that one. So, mm -hmm. given we're going to talk Kevin Smith this week, and given the sequel. Mm -hmm. I thought let's take another look at more rats uh, before we uh, make up our mind about what we think of a sequel when and if ever it gets yeah. released in this country. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, of course, it exists in the MCU as well. Actually, yes, because of Stan the Man Lee. And uh, he was reading the script in Captain Marvel. So mm -hmm. if you want to watch along, you can find it on Apple, Google, Microsoft, YouTube, Fetch, Amazon, all the places in Australia. Probably lots of other places if you're overseas. So, yeah. yeah. 
All right. Now, do you mind if I just... Uh, I reckon, uh, just, why don't you just punch it out, a little bit of your uh, streaming stuff that you finished up this week. So you got a finale of She-Hulk and a finale of uh, Rings of Power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll talk about She-Hulk first, because why not? It's more fun to destroy than it is to create sometimes. This show, my goodness, it's had a lot of tumultuous reviews shall we say online and most of it has been angled at where's the story going why does she hulk look so bad and what's the point of this and you know how when i a couple of weeks ago i talked about um the matrix um resurrections yes and i said they did the cardinal sin of literally showing us sequences from the first movie and trying to replicate them in the movie and not hitting that height. So you were just constantly going, yeah, I, I could just stop this movie and watch the original instead. That self-referential attitude is rife in She-Hulk. And none more so. That, like, the fact that she breaks the fourth wall, fine. Do it. If she does it in the comics, you can do it here. I'm not not having a go at that at all but every single time she has broken the, the fourth wall and talked directly to the audience you can't help but go well yeah so if you're already aware of this why are you doing it if you're agreeing that this isn't a good idea why are you fucking doing it in the first place and that goes through the first few episodes and then it we get to a couple of it's hard to call them filler episodes when pretty much all of them are filler episodes but there's ah, like sequences brutal. where she says, she says oh yes remember who show this is and it's like oh yep this isn't one of those cameo of the week shows it absolutely is and it's just awful to the point where when it finally when you finally get to i think it's hang on let me have a quick look here um so mean green just jen yeah so it actually after episode five you have episode six just jen where um she is just invited to a wedding and it's just jen not she hulk um, and then there's an episode called The Retreat and Rip It and Rip It, uh, or Rib It and Rip It, sorry. Those are episodes five, uh, six, seven, and eight. They actually start building something of a cohesive story and are actually kind of enjoyable. And episode eight, Rib It and Rip It, is where they officially bring Daredevil into the MCU. And it's Charlie Cox coming back, revisiting. Great, lovely. They have that nice little will they won't they romance thing. And it, she's a sex pest, so of course they have sex. Um, and then the finale happens. The finale episode. And I am going to put up the spoilers warning on this one, just for anyone who cares. Travis, do you mind if I talk spoilers? I'm, never, I'm back for more of this. <laughs> because this is the episode whose show is this Walters is released from DODC custody but is wearing uh, forced to wear an inhibitor 
to prevent her from transforming and loses her job at JLK and H. Nikki and Pug infiltrate an Intelligentsia event. Intelligentsia is essentially uh, 4chan. Um, where they learn that Phelps, one of the guys that She-Hulk went on a date with, is Hulk King and Blonsky as the Abomination is serving as a motivational speaker. Walters arrives at the event, confronts Phelps, and it just keeps going there. Um, Phelps injects himself with uh, her blood to transform into a Hulk. Titania, who's this really annoying nemesis of She-Hulk, uh, turns up and um, uh, what's his what's his face? Uh, Mark Ruffalo's Hulk comes in. So you've got Abomination, you've got Hulk, you've got um, Titania, you've got everyone just kind of in there, and it's just all over the place. She breaks the fourth wall and just says, "What the hell is going on?" Like, yep, totally agree with you. What the fuck is this shit? And she then is talking so much that it takes you back to the Disney Plus menu. And she breaks out of the She-Hulk sign and she finds the um, Marvel Assemble thing, which is kind of the behind-the-scenes documentary. And then she goes into that and you follow her through the back lot of the Marvel um, Studios. She goes into the production studio of She-Hulk and interrupts them saying, what the hell's going on here? I want to talk to Kevin, blah, 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 blah. And then she goes and Kevin, it's not Kevin Feige, Kevin is a robot. And she has this big talk about why are we doing this? And Kevin actually says, and people know what uh, people have certain expectations that we need to fulfill. And she and she rightly says, why? Why can't we just do our own thing? And so I'm like, yes, you are absolutely speaking the truth here, sister. Praise, praise, please stop this. Edit the edit the show and give us a, an interesting ending. And they don't. They just go. Nah, we've got the to the end of 22 minutes. Let's wrap wrap this up. And it's fucking awful. It is so fucking bad. The CGI looks trash. Every single character that they have brought into it from the um from the various parts of the MCU is not treated with respect in any way. Like Abomination versus Hulk in the Incredible Hulk movie, which is canon because of this fucking show. Abomination is suddenly like twice the size of Hulk. And it's like, okay, when did that happen? How are we really supposed to believe that Hulk is gonna would be able to take out Abomination with this? And Hulk so what? Okay, fine, whatever. Um, and just the absurdity of the whole thing, it's just bad. It is so bad. I i legitimately don't know if Uwe Boll could have made this worse. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a big criticism. Yeah, because it is badly directed. Tatiana Maslany is charming when she's breaking the fourth wall because she is speaking honestly and openly and it is actually well written what she is saying but they don't have the wherewithal to go you know what yeah 
let's actually listen to our fucking selves and do something interesting with this story rather than it serve to introduce Hulk's fucking child. It's fucking bad, people. It's so bad. I genuinely don't know how anyone at Marvel just went, yeah, this is going to make people happy. Because it's not. It's bad CGI. It is bad representation of every gender. Every gender. Because apart from one guy, all of them are sleazebags and shitty. And apart from Jen, all the women seem to just be either laser-focused on career or hyper, hyper-aware of fashion. It's like, there are so many other branches of this thing called life and if you actually embrace those you can suddenly have some interesting stories and some interesting characters that i would actually be interested in remembering their fucking name for i don't care about any of them it's awful it does not get better it does not get like like i'm looking at the mcu um tv shows Okay, and none of them have stuck the landing. None of them have been able to hold together a good story. And I have said this before about Daredevil, the fact that season one was great on Netflix. The rest of them, patchy, best patchy. They've got 22 episodes for the new one, and they were just about able to do one season of eight or ten episodes? Mm -mm. I don't fucking trust them with Daredevil for 22 episodes. Sorry, they're not going to be able to do it. Don't care how good Charlie Cox is as the character, they have absolutely just lit matches and burnt fires on all of the stuff that they've put on the TV because it's just bad. Either too long, too short, focus is all wrong, or just it's a clusterfuck. And... Ugh, I I don't know what to say more because it's awful. So that's a no. Yes, it's definitely a no. This is this is the worst MCU product bar none. Bar none. It is awful. Does everything wrong. So Hopefully you're going to tell me something different about Rings of Power. So we've said a big no on, but on, on She-Hulk. What do you make of Rings of Power after now having seen the full season? Full first season. It's a joy. It's a joy. It is absolutely a Tolkien product. And by that, it's slow, meandering, and flowery. But they make you very aware from the, from the opening credits even the posters, that this is a Tolkien product. So set your expectations accordingly, and you're going to actually have a really good time because all the characters are well acted. The story is slow and just building, and it gets one and a half thumbs up for the fact that it was pretty much able to hide the twists from me. And that's, that's a statement, that's considering tough. your superpower of ruining things for yourself. <laughs> yes. So it was really nice to actually have that kind of like, oh, okay, they are going there. Oh, they're not going.
go in the oh what oh I like that. That's good. That gives that gives depth to characters. It gives impetus and drive for the next season. Every element of it is designed to kind of just elevate each time. It's cranking it up a little bit each time. And it's just beautifully done. The the quality of the CGI throughout the whole thing is sublime. It is very obviously when you look at it, oh yeah, that's the most expensive TV show ever made right now. <laughs> okay. Um, you can see it. And the fact that they took a long time to actually cultivate the story. Absolutely. It's amazing what happens when you take care and consideration with your product. They're You're crazy. more likely to have a success. <gasps> crazy talk. I know. Um, well, I mean, I, I you know, just stepping back for She-Hulk for one moment, mm. all I've heard is people going, oh, I love how they troll with toxic fanboys in the last episode. And I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of toxic fanboys out there. Don't get me yes. wrong. And I do try very hard to say that we're not amongst them because we give mm. a chance. Mm. Um but if you're going into that mindset, you know what I'm going to do with this final episode? I'm going to troll the toxic fanboys. That's what I'm going to do with my episode. That's what my series is about. I'm going to troll the people who are going to hate this show. Mm -hmm. well, is that the right <laughs> mindset to go in with something like this? And like, I, I, I think we feared that potentially there was going to be a bit of that in, uh, in Ring of, Rings of Power because that's been equally controversial. A lot of people have had a lot of mm -hmm. bad things to say about it. Yeah, but It sounds like they haven't decided to troll the toxic fanboys here. No, no, they haven't. And if you're going to go, you know what? Yeah, we are going to spend the last episode of our series trolling people. Okay, sure. If that's what you want to do, fine. But why? How does that serve your product? How? It doesn't. And with Rings of Power, they say, no, people are going to expect this. So... Let's just do what we want to do with the story. We know where we want to go. We know where we want to end up. So let's just stick to that path. And they did a good job. It's not the best fucking show in the world. It is not. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But it is solid. It is... I, I, you know, I, I joked about it at the start with, with our show of Reliable. But it is. And... The action in it, the um, the set pieces in Rings of Power are sort of like that was good. Actually, that was that was very good. Like it it knows what it wants to do and it does it. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. Um, it's funny the Tolkien fanboys are different to Marvel fanboys. Mm. Well, maybe they are. Well, I don't hear a lot of Marvel people complaining about She-Hulk not being accurate in comics, for example, mm. because I think she broke the fourth wall a lot in the comics mm. and was kind of used as a sexy, sexy character a few times. So yeah, maybe they were kind of accurate enough to a comics to get away with that. But mm. the Tolkien fanboys, my God, they just they seem very set. No, 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 no. Tolkien didn't say it was going to be like this, and you can't veer off course of what you know. Mm -hmm they seem to think Tolkien was saying mm. um, it's their fictional characters. You know, we can do different stuff with fictional characters. Yeah. That's kind of half the fun of fictional yeah. characters, you know, like um, tomorrow night, I'm going to go see Hamilton. Um, 
is a shock horror. Hamilton wasn't Latino, <laughs> despite the fact that he was played by a Latino uh, for you know, uh, the you know, entire run of the American version. Of, what's the, the guy who wrote its name? I can't think of his name off the top of my uh, head. But... Lin-Manuel Miranda. Miranda, yes. He's Puerto Rican, I think. Um, hmm. Alexander Hamilton wasn't Puerto Rican. And he's a real person. So, um, you know, if we can have a Puerto Rican, you know, playing a, a white man who was actually a real person, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we can do something a little bit different with some fictional characters who yeah. were vaguely described by someone who, you know, a hundred years ago in their book. Uh, I remember when the films came out, I've told you this before. I remember I lived with a guy mm. who was a massive Tolkien fan who was shocked. Well, you know, they left the Cimmerillion out. It didn't cover the Cimmerillion stuff in the film. So they're not very good. And you'd be like, oh, fuck, man. I don't even know what the Cimmerillion is because I'm not a Tolkien fan. But like, mm. you know, <laughs> that's it's that, it's that kind of nitpicky shit. Mm. It seems to cause all this uh, this drama with people. That's the big difference. So Lord of the Rings, when they did the when Peter Jackson did the trilogy, he did a overall. I think he did a great job of keeping out the things that weren't vital to get from A to B. With the director's cut ones, he was able to add a lot more of that in, and it did enrich the story. And then when they went back and they did The Hobbit, they added shit in there that was to serve fans and to tick social justice boxes. Like, oh, yes, we're going to have Toriel in there and we're going to have Legolas. And it they didn't need to do that to serve the story. They didn't need three fucking movies to tell the story of The Hobbit. But they did. So that was the wrong way of doing it. Now this... They are. They have kind of managed to get a nice happy medium of yes, we are going to you. We are going to reference things that you are aware of. We are going to generally stick to the timeline that Tolkien set out for the five thousand years or whatever the the length of this time span is supposed to be on the essentially the birth of Middle Earth and the all the rings of power and getting to. The Hobbit, essentially. That's a lot of fucking story that you have to tell. And you're not going to be able to tell it all. So you constrict some of it. You leave some of it out. You merge some characters together so that there's not 5,000 storylines. There's 1,200. And if you do it well, if you do it right, the story and the characters can be preserved. And I think overall they are doing that well with this. They're not inserting things in there just to make it socially appropriate. Some people will come back at me and say, like, oh, yeah, but there's no black dwarves in any of the Hobbit stuff or the Lord of the Rings. That's not an argument. Fuck off. It's, yeah. a, it's a fictional character. They can be any fucking colour. It's absolutely fine. Just enjoy the show. Like, you're getting new content, right? Like Exactly. Uh, enjoy it. Yeah. So it's a tale of two two finales for me with She-Hulk purposely, seemingly purposefully going to antagonize, whereas the Rings of Power is just, we are going to finish our series. We're going to finish series one with this. That's where we aimed to from the beginning. We are not intentionally trying to piss anyone off. We are t- trying to tell a story, and we have... 
pretty good. Pretty good. Well, that's a plus. Um, I'm yes. not sure I'm going to get back to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, it's good to know that they got it right. Like the first two episodes I watched, I thought, seemed pretty good to me. Mm. Um, you know, and as somebody who, it also seemed pretty faithful to me, you know, mm. apart from some of the casting, which I don't, know, I don't really care about the casting, you know, like what color of the skin of the people who were cast, really, more than anything else. Um, <laughs> you know, like I, I have, I, my, my fandom mainly is Trek, right? I love Star Trek. And, you know, I get a lot of new content. There are five Star Trek shows on television at the moment. And How many good ones? Most, most of them are awful. Um, and that's not because of casting. It's because they're badly no. written. But, you know, yeah. it, I would love a, the only one that seems remotely faithful to the source material or to the originals, not all for fans, is Brave New Worlds. Mm. And it was a joy. It was a great joy to me to be watching something that felt like it, it, it saw, you know, hey, you know how you used to really like Star Trek? We've made something for you. Mm. As opposed to all the other series, which are, fuck you, this is Star Trek now. <laughs> you think you know Star Trek? You know nothing, sir. Well, pretty much. Like, well, fuck you. you. You liked what it used to be? Fuck you. This is yeah. what we're making now. This is not for you anymore. Mm. And, you know, I'm open to opening up doors to new audiences, but I would love something to me that was made with a reverence mm. and care that uh, it looked like uh, Rings of Power was ma- to, was paid for Tolkien fans, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of Star Trek, Ooh. I think it might be time. <sighs> it's time for the big one, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so we, we did record this the other night. Excuse the camera. I didn't reinstall Zoom, so it started doing that annoying thing that focused only on the speaker and not both of us. So it's not <laughs> quite as, well, as slick as some of our earlier productions, but um, I'm sure we will. You're saying our quality level is going to drop, sir. I don't <laughs> think you can take it. <laughs> it's actually a thing we're possible. Greetings, Star Trek fans, and welcome back to the final installment of the Trek Perspective here on the podcast. And joining me, as always, is the delightful Michelle uh, Nanu Nanu. How are you today? Oh. <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Uh, you must be yeah. glad this is all over. Feeling a lot of feelings at the moment. Just, you know, I promised myself I wouldn't cry when it finished, you know, that I've gotten to the end. Um, I've done it. A sense of relief. It's over. I never have to interact with anything Trek related ever again in my entire life. I don't know if that's entirely true. Could you pull your hair back? Uh, there we go. I think she's going to interact with something Trek related uh, in the future. Uh, and even if that's only me. Um, and let's, let's not pretend there weren't tears along the way. There were tears. There were laughter. There was uh you know sighs of relief there were sneers of disgust uh particularly <laughs> and that was just star trek one um but here we are to talk about the abrams films so start the last three films in one lump sum these are commonly in the world of trek known as the kelvin verse films let's start with the 2009 reboot uh directed by jj abrams himself a great man star trek this is the introduction of a new crew christopher pine and uh, Zachary Quinto as Spock and Kirk and so on and so forth. What did you make of J.J. Abrams' first um, outing in the Star Trek universe? 
Oh, this is this is going to hurt me saying this. It really is going to hurt me, and I'm just going to have to say it through gritted teeth for many reasons. One, because Star Trek, and two, J.J. Abrams. But I actually found the tone of the three films and the look of it quite good. So in this one, the brash James T. Kirk tries to love to his father's legacy with Mr. Spock keeping him in check as a vengeful Romulan from the future creates black holes, destroy a federation one planet at a time. Uh, our villain here is Eric Banner. Um, the best of the three villains, I might, might add there. And we have the introduction of Chris Hemsworth for about five minutes as James Kirk's dad. Yeah, I mean, honestly... Just standard blonde male model standing would have been just as fine because the amount of acting there was just, well, I mean, it was Chris Hemsworth, you know, but, but uh, yeah, no, standard, I, I don't know whether that's so prominent. Um, look, I like the set, I like the fact that we got to re-meet these characters with a little bit of um, new actors making it theirs and also finding new ways to interpret them. I enjoyed that slightly. I thought all of them do a really good job of the characters, um, except for, is it Simon Pegg makes me laugh. I'm like, is that a real Scottish, is that, a, that's a pretend Scottish, you can see it from a mile away, that Scottish accent is just, mm, you know, fake, 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 fake. Um, but the rest of them do a really good job of trying to imbue themselves into the roles, I think. The actor that does Bones and the actor that does Spock do a better job than um, Christopher Pine. I think Christopher Pine modernizes um, Kirk a little bit too much to the point where you're like, is, there's no, other than the arrogance, I'm not quite sure how this links it back to William Shatner. And William Shatner was way more smoother. Well, there's only one, there's only one Bill, Bill Shatner. So. So, you know, we can't hope to have him live up maybe to that. Maybe we mean Kirk at a time when, you know, life has had its way with him and smoothed out all the edges. And so we're getting the real edgy version of Kirk. But, um, yeah, I, I actually don't like how he plays Kirk. I actually prefer William Shatner. Well, we, uh, we also get some old school Spock in this film, which I think you actually might have sickly enjoyed. I thought Yes, which gave me the shits because I'm like, why am I caring that this has heart? <laughs> reference um, to another, but I thought it gave it a lot of heart. And I got to say, my criticism of the previous um, Star Trek movies were that they didn't follow character arc properly. I think J.J. Abrams does a very good job of actually creating a storyline, a proper arc. And one where I'm not laughing because what they're doing is completely nonsensical. This actually put it in a universe where I had a reference point of why this was serious, what isn't. Some of those introductions where they're in a uh, far off world, like I think in the second film, they were in that red world. We'll get onto that one in a second. So uh, uh, what did you, what did you make of this sense or how many lockdowns? Uh, uh I'd probably give it three out of 10 lockdowns. I thought seven, seven out, of out of 10. Yeah. High praise indeed. Now you were just hinting. So the next one we're going to look at is Starting to Darkness, which is the follow-up. Also directed by J.J. Abrams. Same crew, uh, same cast, largely. 
except the bad guy this time is Robocop himself, Peter Weller, which I kind of enjoy seeing Peter Weller kick around. The only real other addition to the crew of a car series, of course. Sorry, the, the real bad guy, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is calm. Uh, and uh, I enjoyed seeing Alice Eve. Everyone who's heterosexual men enjoyed seeing Alice Eve pop up as Carol Marcus in this film. Um, in the scene that's become somewhat controversial of late. Um, but you say you're talking, this one opens up on in a, in a faraway world and a red planet with them stealing some stuff from. Yeah, so that seemed to be a lot nonsensical, which is, I found the same thing with the start of the third one. I know what they stole or what was happening. No, he was presenting a gift, which was not accepted by that particular. Um, that's the last one. Yeah. But again, those, those, they're not good at. You know what I don't I've never liked about Star Trek and this is probably the thing I don't like about Star Wars as well just all the different types of um uh monsters and whatever all the different types of whatever they're called aliens and well usually aliens yes yes I can't really um I just find I just want to laugh I just you know and I thought the particular the rest of the film was so serious and so you're, you're they're trying to do these light-hearted moments and i'm like mm, it doesn't quite they're not do like i think that's what marvel does really really well hit those serious notes with the banter notes and the and the, the humor that's what actually that's what's made those films so successful i don't think uh jj abram pulls this up pulls this off in um in star trek uh in in either of the three films um the guy who plays Bones has great comedic timing. Simon Pegg is playing to the cheap seats. Um, Christopher finds a little bit too serious. I actually really like Uhura. 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 But maybe because it's Zoe Zoldana and I've got a soft spot for it. Just speaking of our connections between our two connections between the uh, Marvel Universe and the Trek Universe here being Benedict Cumberbatch. And Zoe Saldana, who are both Avengers, of course. Yes. Yeah, so I think I, I actually really liked her interpretation. They both both of the actors who play that role have a lot of dignity to the role and also a lot of I'm surrounded by men, Oive, uh, sense about them, which they both communicate quite well. Um and I thought uh who am I missing? Oh, um oh, what's his name? Yes, yeah, Zulu played by, is it Michael Cho? John Cho. John Cho. Uh, who, who I also have a spot for, soft spot for because he's a brilliant actor. Um, I thought he did really well with his role as well. So, and then there was a Russian guy who played the Russian guy. He ah, was, Anton Yelchin, the late Anton Yelchin. Um, yeah, it's, um, they didn't make the, more of that uh, role. Um, anyway, so in this particular one, we've got Cumberbatch, and as much as I have a lot of time for Cumberbatch because I am a fan of Sherlock Holmes uh, and Doctor Strange, he seemed a little bit out of place in this film. Um, wrong, like, like, are you? I'm sorry, are you the right? Are you in the right film as a villain? I think you're meant to be in another film. So he seemed out of character a little bit, even though he's playing Khan. Is that because and he doesn't normally play villains? No, I think he'd make a great villain, to be honest. Uh, um, I just think that he just didn't fit in 
maybe I associate him with Marvel so much that I just didn't associate him with a Star Trek franchise, but he just seemed a little out of place. I'm trying to find if it's more than, I think if, whether it was more than that or not. Uh, no. Because there have been criticisms by some people I know that he's too white to play a character named Khan because Khan is kind of uh, played traditionally in um, the previous films by uh, Ricardo Montalban. Um, and he well, obviously... Sorry? When there's not a lot of representation going on and you have a character that you've identified growing up going, this is my type of character because I see myself in him and now they've taken that away from me. I can understand that criticism. I can also understand from the other perspective, you know, a character is a character and an actor is, you know. Well, he's, he was, uh, Ricardo Montalban, of course, was, I believe, a Mexican extraction. Um, and, you know, oh, yeah. olive skin, dark skin, olive skin, you know, he's a darker skinned person. And, you know, um, you know, I guess, again, I guess Mexican, Khan is also not a traditional Mexican name as far as I'm aware. So, uh, but some people did say that it was maybe a little bit of whitewashing there, casting a white man as a character named Khan. Uh, what did you make of the... Um, I thought the original Khan did a much better... Well, Ricardo Montalban with a shirt. It was the shirt, wasn't it? It was the... It was the shirt. It the was, shirt. It was the 70s vibe showing my lack of chest hair, my manly chest. You know, I, mm. I, I very much... You know, and chewing the that. scenery, but you can't you can't compare it to the original. But what did you make of the uh, the ending of this one? So for those who haven't, it's a ten year old film, so I think we could spoil it. Um, the, the the role reversal of Kirk and Spock's, you know, it's Kirk's death at the end as opposed to Spock's death in the original. Uh it was much more moving in the original. I I just thought that you know I I get you one zag when everyone's expecting you to zig and all the rest of it, but you know. Yeah. Did it feel contrived? No. It felt contrived. It felt a little bit like member berries. It felt, yeah, I, I thought the second film did absolutely, I thought the first film did a better job than the second film. Just, how even many, though I thoroughly enjoyed it a batch. How many, how many lockdowns for Star Trek Into Darkness? Uh, probably a four and a half, maybe a four. Four, so maybe a five and a half, six out of ten for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's keep going then. We're going to be last Star Trek film of the uh, saga. Oh my God. Is it really happening? For Is now, it? anyway, for now. Oh my God. Um, they don't, bad so The studio don't seem to have any fucking idea about how to get this back on the big screen right now. So oh, I think. I don't care if the studio is bringing it back. I, I. I have fulfilled the... Oh, no, you, you won't be forced to watch it, but for the rest of us out there who enjoy I... these films. Yeah. Anyway, well, Satrick... I So, Satrick Beyond, the crew of the USS Enterprise explores the first reaches of uncharted space by encounter a new ruthless enemy who puts them and everything the Federation stands for to the test. This was not written or directed by J.J. Abrams. It was a bad robot question. This was written by Simon Pegg and Doug Jung, or Jung, and directed by Justin Lin this time, who before this was probably best known for his involvement in the Fast and Furious movies. Um, and the bad guy this time is played by Idris Elba, unfortunately covered by a great deal of makeup for most of the film. What did you make of Star Trek Beyond? It was my favourite one out of all the 13. What did you enjoy about it? 
a lot. Um, well, let's let's start with the fact that at no point did I make you pause it to see how long to go. Uh, I just thought the action was on point. The character the character arcs were on point. The only thing that failed this movie was a really crappy villain. So when we get to the point where the villain actually states its case for doing what he was doing, it just kind of went what? Uh, just stay home. Why are you bothering? <laughs> it um, was you confusing. Know. Yeah. So I thought Idris Alba, of course, is a great actor and very nice to look at on screen. Um, but um, yeah, his character was a bit confusing. I thought the interaction between the characters, the relationship between Uhura and Spock, I absolutely loved. Um, I also liked that relationship between uh, just bones there with Spock there for a moment as well. Simon Pegg and the girl warrior, woman warrior that he found. Jayla. Jayla. I really like Jayla. She was cool. Uh, um, you know, uh, I actually thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Like, to the point that I forgot that I was being made to watch this. <laughs> I would a take issue with the word made. Um and and just sort of remind you that this was a freely entered into arrangement of course of course um so this one being written by simon Pegg, we saw a lot more of simon Pegg in this one than the previous two did that help you change your opinion of his performance as scotty i think simon Pegg's a good writer i don't know if he's a good actor but he's definitely a good writer i think he pulled all these things I think he got closer to doing the humour banter parts better and then the seriousness better than J.J. Abrams. In fact, there was that line where Bones goes, damn it, I'm not a, I'm a, I'm not a, a, damn it, I'm a doctor. And I think I just laughed out loud. So I just thought the characterization was good. Story arc was good. The, it, it was pacey in a good way. There wasn't stuff in, except for the villain's main speech where I went, huh? There wasn't stuff in there that took me out of it that I'm like, wait, what's, oh, this is absolutely stupid and deranged. Um, I, I just thought it was a really good job. Well done. And I would give it one out of 10 lockdowns. Ooh, a nine out of 10. That's very high praise. High praise indeed. I, I particularly enjoyed the scene where they used the power of hip hop to defeat the enemy. Um, yeah. Sabotage. Sabotage. That was brilliant. Um, that, I, was, that was nicely, uh, you know, that's a beautifully threaded, it just went through concept, history, characterization. It just put everything together to create that moment, which was just beautifully done. Uh, you weren't familiar with that song beforehand, and I had to give you a bit of a heads up on the, um, the Star Trek in-joke that that was, of course. Um, and I thoroughly once I knew that, but it, yeah. even without knowing that, I enjoyed that moment. Um, how beautifully choreographed it was! It did look good on the screen. It's um, I'll, I'll pay it that um, I didn't like this very much when it came out in 2016. I thought it was certainly the most average of the three, particularly stuff like Kirk jumping a motorcycle over a cliff kind of thing. It was like really, it reeked of um. Did you well, it just reeked of Fast and Furious. It's something you'd see in a Fast and Furious movie, not in a Star Trek movie. I don't want 
Kirk riding motorcycles in Star Trek movies doing stunt jumps. Like, it was stupid. Um, and it didn't make any sense um, in the sense he was driving a 500-year-old internal combustion motorcycle, and it just works. But, um, you know, but that said, um, maybe I was watching it again several years later. It was a lot more entertaining this time around than than uh, when I saw it back in 2016 for the first time. I still think it was a poor choice of director, and I think I don't think Justin Lin understands Trek. Um, he made a Fast and Furious film with the Trek characters and spaceships, which, you know, is fine. Um, but the fact there hasn't been another one since, you know, um, and they're still struggling to figure Maybe out. Maybe there's 13 films and we've all had enough. Maybe could also be that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. There's money. I don't think they're going to stop making <laughs> There are five different five different Star Trek television shows on the air at the moment. I think four or five Star I'm Trek happy shows. To that I've watched none of them and will watch them. Discovery, Brave New World, uh, Below Decks, Picard, and Star Trek Genesis. I think is the other one. Or they have like, Star Trek, you know, cooking show at this point. I mean, well, I, I, I wouldn't put it past them. It's Star Trek, something like Nemesis, Genesis, something like that. Anyway, um, and that's five different Star Trek shows on the air at the moment. So uh, I don't think anybody is actually at Paramount agrees that people have had enough because they're giving us more than ever. Except everything they're giving us now, except for maybe Brave New World, sucks. Um, so anyway, that is the end of our journey. That is the end of the Trek perspective, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else. In between and undecided. Thank you, Michelle, for uh, being my uh, uh, guinea pig um, and experimental co-host here. <laughs> You're very welcome. It, it's been educational. Thank you for being a good sport. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our delightful audience. Um, there could be a new Trek perspective coming or a new version of this for somebody else, a new victim. Um, but we'll all will be revealed in good time. So in the meantime, thank you very much, Michelle. Thank you, Travis. May the force be with you. And <laughs> back to you, Spearsy. Yeah. <laughs> Cinematic masterpiece finished perfectly. And my goodness, she is free. Free at last. Movies. Wow. What an epic. What a series. And the Star Trek Beyond getting the highest grade. We all happen, right? Every one of those films, like, whatever the least popular um, <laughs> thing was of, of a particular, the least popular next gen film was Nemesis. That's the one she liked. Um, I guess it wasn't true of, the, of, of the TOS because she rightly thought Star Trek Five was ass, but um, <laughs> but you know the stuff that was less trekky, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, was um, less trekky was more in her wheelhouse because she's not a trekky. Yeah, anyway, it's over now. She never has to watch another one of these in her life. Um, to whatever happens next in the Trek universe, she won't see it. That was yep. a, they actually the the Star Trek four that was going to happen was going to be written by the guys who did Rings of Power. That's right, yeah. And they came out this week with a bit of a, a conversation about what it was going to be about. It was going to be 
Chris Hemsworth stuck in a transporter loop, a little bit like there's a next gen episode where Scotty is stuck in like a transporter loop and they bring him back for an episode of Star Trek Next Gen um, and have hijinks and adventures. And that was what they were going to do. They were going to do that with Chris Hemsworth's George Kirk um, in in the fourth um, Star Trek film. So the fourth Abrams Trek film. Mm. Um, But they couldn't get the, uh, apparently, negotiations broke down over money for Chris Pine and Chris Hemsworth. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, he... uh... He's uh, kind of gotten used to that MCU money, I guess. Money, and he's never been in anything good if it's not part of the MCU. Like pretty much every other film that Chris Hemsworth's done, other than maybe Cabin in the Woods, which is kind of before he was in the MCU, he's mm-hmm. been trash. Was he in that uh, Rush? Yeah. Okay. Hey, I haven't seen. I haven't seen Rush. That was okay. Um, anyway. Uh, it's done. It's done. Mm-hmm. It's over. You know, uh, ding dong. The witch is dead. The wicked witch. <laughs> it's, you are done with your perspective. Um, mm-hmm. It has been interesting for me to go back and watch them again. So I've appreciated mm-hmm. the whole opportunity. Has looking back on it, has your opinion changed on any of your standing critiques of any of the movies? Like, has it? It has. It has. Nemesis had its moments. Actually, it wasn't as terrible as I remember it was. Tom Hardy really does his act his little ass off in that film. Mm. And he goes really stands up really well with Patrick Stewart. So Nemesis, I think, deserves to be revisited. Mm. Um, and Star Trek Beyond, I remember thinking, no. And I saw it for whatever reason. I don't really remember exactly. I remember, like I said, I did talk about the motorcycle part, and that was mm. dumb. Yeah. Um, you know, but and the villain is the villain is insipid. Mm. Um but it's actually a fun movie, and they, they kind of got a lot of that right. Um, mm. But, yes, it, it, so it was a bit harsh on Beyond. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Can we, now, talking about things that I love, can, yes. I, I, can I, well, something we love is, is we talk about Kevin Smith. Yes. Yes. The Godfather of the show. Godfather of the show. Those who don't know, this show started after a conversation we had after seeing uh, a screening of Tusk mm-hmm. at which Kevin Smith did a incredibly stoned Q&A over Skype in the cinema. Like he was, oh. he was absolutely baked. Um, and we had that conversation because everyone, he always gets asked the question, how do I get started? Yes. And Kevin's answer is usually something like just start. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. Uh, yeah. And we're still in the process of starting. <laughs> um, and and Clerks, the Clerks, I love Clerks. Like one of my favorite movies. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's it's a great, I mean, it's a really wonderful little film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of kicked off Kevin Smith's career. And yeah. I always try and explain it. Kevin's, Kevin's one of us, you know, like he's a, he's a nerd. He's a geek. He's a, he's a guy from a working class world. He somehow ended up landing in Hollywood yeah. through you know, raw grit, determination, and a bit of talent. Um, and I think in the 90s, he was the it kid, right? I mean, the clerks, uh, more rats, whether I remember it fondly or not, other people did. I think Chasing Amy at the time was very hip and very trendy. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting now how unhip and unpc that film is in hindsight. You could not make that film anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where they had Kevin Smith come in and write draft of the new superman movie mm-hmm. um you can find the whole conversation about that in um yeah. death of superman lives what happens a great documentary 
or one of the YouTube videos of Kevin talking about it. Kevin fucking Smith, a guy who was like a fat guy from Jersey, almost got to write a new superhero, new Superman movie. Mm. Free looking glass. Yeah. So I wasn't a massive fan of Clerks 2, but I thought it had its moments. Mm. Um, when I heard Clerks 3 was coming out, I'm like, that's a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking terrible idea. Uh, aside from the fact that I think it didn't need a third film, mm-hmm. Kevin hasn't been in top form in the last couple of decades. Like, I mm-hmm. think the last film of his that I thought was really actually good of any quality was probably Red State. And I think we're going back well over 10 years for that. 2011. And even then, that's kind of iffy in parts. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no time for Tusk, no time for the and Solon Bob reboot, and fucking no time for that movie he made with his daughter, Yoga Hoses. Awful. Zach and Mary make corner. So I'm being wrong. That was okay. But when we go back and watch that again recently, I'm just, mm, um, but you know, he doesn't doesn't done a lot of quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really heartened when a lot of the early reviews came in and said this was really fucking good. Yeah. Um, that Chris, I think the guy's name is from JoeBlow.com. Chris who, Brumby. You know, base their entire show off our material usually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, he is sounded like he, his review sounds like he sounded a lot like me. He discovered that film in his late teens and just fell in love with it and was a big mm. Kevin Smith fan from there on forwards. And he said it made him, he actually walked out a bit teary out of his cinema. He, he really connected with it. It gave me great hope that maybe somehow revisiting these characters had really re-inspired Kevin to start making films of quality again and really sort of, um, you know, jump-started his muse, which seems to have been on, on permanent vacation for a long time now. Mm. Um, I don't know what film they saw, but it sure as hell wasn't the one that I saw because Clerks mm. Free is complete and utter garbage. I'm no, sorry. No. I really am sorry because I, I remember saying, I was saying to Michelle while we were watching it the other night, fuck, I really, really, really wanted to like this film. I really wanted to like it. I, I really have so much time for Kevin. I love mm-hmm. that he's still with us after his heart attack. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a funny guy. He's, he's like the kind of guy you'd really enjoy hanging out with. Like, yeah. Um, and I really wanted to believe that this was going to be his return to form. But my God, it's not. It's fucking terrible. It is terrible, terrible, terrible. Like it has a meta score of 50. And that is fucking generous. This, I gave this maybe, I'm being generous. I think an INDB, I might have rated this a four out of 10. And I think that's generous. Ooh. Maybe I should have got, it's bad. Now, that's not to say there aren't a couple of chuckles in this film. Mm-hmm. Fair few and far between. Anyway, Dante, Elias, and Jay and Son Bob are enlisted by Randall after a heart attack to make a movie about the convenience store that started it all. Mm-hmm. So it's set in the present day. Uh, Dante, uh, played by, uh, I forget the character's name now for all these years, uh, the same guy who always plays Dante. Um, and um, and Randall now own the Quick Stop. Yeah. So at the end of I haven't seen Clerks two in about fifteen years, so I had to try and really remember what happened. Yeah. But, um, they were in the previous film. Brian O'Halloran, sorry, plays Dante. They were working at Movies, which is a fast food store, in the second one. 
I think from memory, maybe it burns down or something at the end of a second one. I can't remember. But they are now back at the at the quick stop and they have now own the business 5050. Mm. Next door, where the video store was, is now a marijuana dispensary, which is owned by none other than Jay and Son Bob. Um, we are introduced to the character of Elias, played by Trevor Thayerman, uh, as someone who works for Dante and Randall in the store and is kind of the butt of a lot of their jokes. He's one of the few bright spots in this film in the sense that initially he's kind of annoying, but he has some good stuff in the end, some some chuckles, <laughs> some amusing moments. But he just turns up. And it's like, I like in the synopsis, like, Jay, you know, Dante and Elias work with Dante. I'm like, we've not really ever given much of an intro to him other than he just sort of <laughs> turns up. Uh, and okay. it just keeps happening in this film. There's not a lot of context in, of a lot of a cool things, the ideas that are in this film. As it's noted, Randall, early in the film, has a massive heart attack and is rushed to hospital where he survives purely on the skill of his surgeon. Uh, and it turns out he has had a widow maker um, uh, heart attack, which is the same one that um, Kevin has. Yeah. Um, and uh, trying to find the actual name of the actress who plays the surgeon. I think it's Amy Sedaris. Uh, yes. Uh, who plays in uh, The Mandalorian. From the ah, mistake. yep. Uh, he's the mechanic person in The yeah. Mandalorian. Anyway, so after coming out of hospital, he has kind of a come to Jesus moment and realizes that, you know, maybe uh, he's joking with, um, with Dante in the hospital, but like, you know, Dante says something like, you know, you would have made a great movie. He says, why don't I make a movie? And then mm. therein starts the process of Dante, Randall trying to make his movie. The movie that Randall is trying to make is Clerks. Um, the original Clerks movie. So he okay. started to make a movie about all the stories and funny things that have happened to them while they were working in the quick stop in the video store. And okay. I, you know what? I kind of thought, when I saw that story idea, I thought, that's kind of a cool idea. Actually, it's very meta. And they, they could nod at that. They kind of go, actually, that's kind of meta. And I'm like, it is, but it, it kind of works in a way. I was kind of like, this is obviously something Kevin's passionate about. He's had the heart attack himself and, you know, he's done really well. He's lost all that weight subsequently mm -hmm. to this. Um, he's gone vegan to do it. I mean, you know, sacrifices had to be made. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you hear him talk about it and he's actually been quite an advocate for it and, you know, recognizing the signs of a heart attack. And I thought, this is cool. Um, and, you know, now his characters, his great creation, are going to make clerks in the close universe. That's kind of a cool idea. Mm. No, I'm afraid it's not. I mean, the, the moment in the hospital where Randall's had uh, the heart attack, I mean, Michelle and I kind of looked at each other and talked about how it felt like an after-school special on you know public television here in Australia. Mm -hmm. We would say the ABC, I, maybe the BBC back home for you or PBS in the US. We're like, you know, kids, we've had a lot of laughs here today, but... Half the tax and no laughing matter. If you're having a heart attack, call 911 today. You know, kind of like, mm -hmm. and it just sort of like, you know, it's conversation between Dante and the surgeon going, wow, heart attacks are serious, aren't they, Doc? Yeah, that's right, Dante. Heart attacks kill one of three strands. You know, like, you know, like, okay, I'll be sure. You should get your heart checked too if you have a life like him. Oh, yes, doctor, I'll definitely get my heart checked now. It, there were moments of it like that that felt not like a feature film, but like a public service announcement. And that's mm. not good. I mean, you know, 
always Brian O'Halloran and and uh, uh, Jeff Anderson. Uh, they're not pros, I don't think. I mean, they're not professional actors. They mm. were keen amateurs, I think. That's all that they, but Kevin could afford to hire at the time. He got very, very lucky. <laughs> got cast in a, a film that went big, and they're still tar- starring those characters all these years later. Yeah. But what follows the public service announcement in the hospital and Dante comes back and starts making his movie is a series of callbacks, fan service, and member berries. Okay. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to them. Some of them are kind of, a couple of them here and there are fine. Like, you know, outside of the, um, the quick stop, they've got those cardboard advertising hoardings around some of the poles at the front. And it has like mm. Chuli's gum and nails, which were a brand of cigarettes and the brand of gum that he made up for it. And there's nice little nods here and there and stuff like to the reminders of the 90s. And you go, yeah, can't a couple of them, but they just get coming. And they just yeah. get coming, and they become less nuanced and less sensible. They come sort of because they they don't make any sense at all. Like they just be a reference that's inserted for the sake of it being a reference, you know. Um, like uh, and then there's one or two that are kind of they make a joke out of. It. It's kind of funny. Like there's one in the trailer you can see where uh, Dante says, "Well, you know, you could do that story about you. You could tell that story about you and the uh, the Death Star and the toilet contractors." Um, and Randall's like, ah, no, nah, we just get sued by Disney. Uh, and I'm like, you go, yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny, and it's why you put it in the trailer. But most yeah. of the references are just thrown in for the sake of being thrown in. They don't seem to actually fit the story. And after a while, the story seems to take backseat, the backseat to it's as the story is just there to provide a vehicle for references, callbacks, and nostalgia. Uh, okay. Um, and that seems to be eighty percent of the film, uh, and the other ten percent of story, and the other ten percent is cameos, cameos, cameos. Each more shocking than the last, uh, including Sarah Michelle Keller, <laughs> Fred mm-hmm. Armisen, Anthony Michael Hall, Ben Affleck, Justin Long, Ethan Suplé, Melissa Benoit, Rosario Dawson, Kate Masucci, Freddie Prince Jr., Danny Trejo, uh, Harley Quinn Smith, his daughter. Uh, and <laughs> that's just the famous ones. Yeah. Um, there's also all the people from the first movie, like uh, Marilyn Gigliotti, who played Veronica, who was Dante's girlfriend in the original. Oh, Turns yeah. up for a few scenes, including a sex scene in this one. Um, a number of other people who just characters from the first one. The guy who was examining the eggs in the first one comes back again, take a selfie with an egg this time. Uh, okay. <laughs> So it's like the story is really unimportant here. It, it's really, it's like, it's, hey, we had this cool idea. Mm. What do we do with this idea now of, of Randall making this movie? Uh, I don't know. Let's just put in a bunch of references and nostalgia. And that's all it is. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I'm not opposed to nostalgia. I like nostalgia. Yeah. Um, people like me like nostalgia. And I'm a yeah. person like me. Um, and I just like it when it's done smartly or hmm. it's done with some, what's the word, uh, discretion or, you know, you don't put it all in at once. You know what I mean? Mm. There's too much of a good thing can be bad. There's too much of a, there is way too much here. Okay. Way, way too much. Um, so I, it's got nothing to say. Yeah. I don't think, I think it's got some ideas about what it w- might want to say. 
Um, there's some interesting ideas hinted at. Um, so for those who remember in Clerks 2, Rosario Dawson played Becky, who mm-hmm. was Dante's fiance, I think, from memory. On a, uh, no, she was the boss. At but the they, were t- they were together, though. Um, they had a thing, and then by the end, because he was going to get married to someone else, and then she finds out that she's pregnant, I think, and then he ends up staying with her rather than getting married to someone he doesn't really love. Yes, but there are a couple of sorts. I don't know if they were engaged or whatever, but yeah, so it's how long it's been. I should have gone back and watched Clerks 2 first. I'm sorry, people. I only have so much time in a week. (gasps) Um, Spoiler alert. So this one probably should be the the spoiler. Hang on. There you go. Down down there, the spoilers are on. If you want to know nothing about this film, including George, you can just go la, 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 la. Um. But at the start of this film, we find out that Becky is dead. <gasps> Larry Dawson. And it made me something and go, did she die at the end of the last film and I just forget? Um, I don't remember her dying at the end of the last one. She could have died at the end of the last one. I don't remember. Um, mm. But they don't really actually take the time to explain how and why and what happened. There is a scene in the hospital where Dante has a flashback to her on a gurney being wheeled in. And I think it's insinuated that she passed away of cancer of some description. Okay. Um, but Rosario Dawson does make a comeback as a force ghost. Um, I'm being facetious. It's not actually noted that she's a force ghost. But she does, he'll go and visit her grave and then there'll be a scene where the two of them have a full-on conversation. And she'll continue to return to him, you know, in that way throughout the film. Okay. And you're going to go... It's an interesting idea again. Um, you know, like, but it's sort of like Kevin suddenly hits, scrits, scrits, slams on the brakes, spins the wheel, pulls the handbrake, and all of a sudden a huge left turn right out of nowhere into a very emotional moment between uh, Dante and Becky. And there's a number of these scenes where Dante gets very emotional. And you know, props to Brian O'Halloran. He does some of his best acting he's ever done in mm. those scenes. But they're completely out of character for the rest of the story. And this is why my problem with a lot of Kevin's work of late, and I don't want to diss the guy who's put a lot more films out than I ever have, hmm. um, but he's, the tone of the films don't match. Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's like, you know, it doesn't, there's no easing into this kind of emotion. It doesn't seem to fit into the rest of the story. Just the fart jokes and dick jokes, and here's a big emotional scene for you to enjoy. Yeah. Um, and it, they don't it seems like it really kind of, it's really pulls you out of a picture because you're like, okay, I'm sorry. What is this movie? Um, yeah. Some of these ideas around loss and moving on and arrested, being, being stuck in arrested development um, mm. due to the, the loss and trauma in the middle of years of your life. I think these are interesting ideas that Kevin's touching on here. Um mm. You know, I, you and I are big advocates for men's mental health, and in particular, he's doing a walk for men's mental health. You can, he'll tell you later about how you can support him in doing that. Um, so, but see, I was saying, talking about this with Michelle, but people must play it for laughs. You know, the idea of a man in his forties who is stuck in arrested development, or 
you know, failure to launch, if you remember that film from all those years ago, mm. uh, or stuck in a rut even, even if you're not fail- stuck, if, you know, stuck 10 years ago because, you know, the person you love left you or died 10 years ago, as in this case. These are ideas that people kind of laugh off and we don't really, I feel, like give a proper mm. uh, respect or attention. You just go, oh, whoa, he's just a loser. He lives in his mom's basement. Um, you know, and I, I, I think that's um, not a smart way to deal with those um Mm. those issues i think these people's issues while they may manifest themselves in ugly ways yeah. uh, a la the proud boys or trump supporters or whatever they get a little political for a second mm. uh i think that's we that's that kind of loss and trauma can lead to some ugly places but we don't spend any time sympathetically examining what that's like or how to move through that in our stories Mm. And I thought this would have been a wonderful opportunity for us to, and maybe Kevin Smith's not the director to do it. Mm. Um, but it would have been an interesting idea. And I think he's the kind of director who could because he's the kind of director these people will watch his films because they're full of fart and dick jokes and weed jokes, you know, smoking a giant joint, you know. But if you could also manage to subvert that with also some messages about, hey, you know, trauma happens to everybody. And you know what? It's actually kind of normal in your 40s uh, to actually be kind of hit over the head with that and to, you know, be stuck a little bit and to really not know what to do with that trauma, mm. you know, and then maybe explore some ideas about how that can be dealt with. I mean, I'm not talking in a preachy after school PSA way, you know, I'm talking about, you know, through a nuanced storytelling of, you know, a character, you know, just going in arc, you know, he loses his wife, his friend has a heart attack. He's experienced a lot of loss. Mm. What does he do now? How does he move through that? You mm. know, and I think the story here, what he's trying to tell is about the power of friendship and the value of friendship and the value of, you know, male friendships. And again, that's something else is we play for laughs, but are mm. important, you know, um, yeah. especially in this day. And I'm sorry, I'm rambling about this, but these are all things he could have done. These are all ideas that are kind of sprinkled in there. I mm. feel like maybe they're there by accident. This film is so bad. Because wow. he takes there's no effort to actually explore the interesting ideas that he um, bumps into here in place of just nostalgia and fan service. It almost kind of sounds like this is like we talked about it a couple of weeks ago of those movies that brought in stereotypes that are now actually very socially aware or um, in the in the zeitgeist of society much more than ever and it's like okay um a bit a, i think we might have even been talking about um chasing amy and how sort of like oh actual um lgbtqi representation on screen but then looking back at it is incredibly problematic and very bad but it was like it was all that we had at the time and it was maybe a necessary step it kind of feels like that seems to be Kevin Smith's thing. Uh, so like, I have a message to say, I'm not good enough to pull it off properly. So this is the best I've got. Someone else take it from here. To a degree, I can see your point. Um, I don't think when he was telling Chasing Amy, he really wanted to tell an LGBTQ story. Sure. I just think it was like, it's funny. wouldn't it be funny if... Mm. You fell in love with a lesbian. Mm. I mean, and Seinfeld did something similar. You know, the character George was dating someone who turned out to be a lesbian. Um, yeah. And, you know, like, 
it's probably it was probably it should have been offensive to us in 1999 the idea that Ben Affleck could turn a lesbian away from same-sex attraction you know he would try mm. it could have been offensive but you know it was also charmingly written and, mm. and funny and I still think it probably I haven't seen it in a long time it might be a joke still hold up I don't know Maybe. despite being offensive I think it can be both yes you know, but remember we saw the um, what was the Peter Sellers film we saw, Murder by Death. Murder by Death. Like, there's yep. some funny jokes in there still, but yep. oh, but you're not allowed to laugh at that. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, I was, I oh, look, I want to ramble on about this too much. I've been going on about it too long. I'm sorry. It's bad. It's really, really bad. If you were like me and you're a long time Kevin Smith fan, look, you mm-hmm. might get there's plenty of fan service nostalgia in there, but you're going to get out of it. I didn't enjoy that. I, I, you know, just getting nostalgia by itself with nothing else around it is, you know, like eating a breakfast, having a bowl of marshmallows for breakfast, you know, like <laughs> the first one or two taste okay, but it can get cloying after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's really had in the end, I was glad it was over. It was a long hour, 40 minutes. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. guys. I don't think Kevin's got it anymore. Love you always. Love him always. If he ever sees this, we're fucking dead. Um, <laughs> he said his Twitter army on us, but mm, no, I, I'll, I'll still see his stuff. I'll see even more rats thing when it comes out. But yeah, my expectations forevermore, I think, are going to be set to zero for Kevin. Yeah, I mean, is the stuff that he's got coming up? He's got uh, Kilroy was here, which is due to come out this year. Twilight of the Morites, which is in pre-production. Sam and Twitch, which is some TV show, Moose Jaws, the much lauded third of the um, Great White North movies that he's been making, and Hell in a Handbag, which is another announced one. So we'll see what happens there. But none of those are exactly kind of going, okay, yeah, that sounds like he's really trying something new or... um, there's 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 no indication there whatsoever one way or i think another. he talked a while ago about coming to co- becoming comfortable with the idea of what he was mm. and what he could do and he was like i accept the kind of filmmaker i am i'm going to stop trying to make mm. what was that film he made with bruce willis um the Harvard, Top a couple you know and like the, the you know, those kind of films those big studio films i'm not going to do them anymore i make the films i want to make the films i think i'm good at and it almost feels like he's accepted well, I'm terrible, so I'm going to keep making terrible films, but I'm not going to try and make good films anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of. Which is a shame because he does when he's when he's tuned in. He's shown that he has talent. He did, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and speaking of things that are bad, you saw the mm. bad guys. Yes, I did. So it this may not be a- actually bad. It's just called the bad guys. I don't know. Yeah, it's just called the bad guys, and. <clears throat> came out this year. It's based on um, a series of books written by Aaron Blabby. Blabby? Here's what I found. Shut up. <laughs> Siri keeps on talking to me. Um, it is a DreamWorks production, and it has got one of our favourite actors voicing in it, and he does a great job. It is Samuel Rockwell. <clears throat> It's got quite a few voices in there, actually, that um, we do appreciate, um, including Richard Ayoade as Professor Marmalade and the eternal voice of Alex Borstein 
Um, it's got Zazie Beats, it's got Anthony Ramos, Craig Robinson, Okafina, and Mark Marone take up the primary big um, characters of the film. Um, this is, to avoid prison, a gang of notorious animal criminals pretend to seek being rehabilitated, only for their leader to secretly find that he genuinely wants to change his ways. Now, that sounds like a very, very um, kid-friendly movie. And this is designed for kids. It's based on kids' series books. But what it does is have a whole lot of charm. And it kind of knows what it's trying to do. Um, Sam Rockwell plays Wolf. Um, Mark Marone plays Snake. Aquafina is Tarantula. Craig Robertson is Shark. And Anthony Ramos is Piranha. Richard Ayoade plays um, Professor Marmalade, who is a guinea pig that is about to receive a uh, so like an achievement for his philanthropic work. And the first thing that hit me about this movie, the animation style, unique, interesting, and beautiful. It's got a little bit of um, Into the Spider-Verse style kind of dropped frame thing. So it's like action sequences just have this mo even more of a comic book kind of feel to them with that. Um, here's, a here's a panel, here's a panel, here's a panel. And the use of color is really interesting. The sound effects and everything about it just works very, very nicely. There's more than a nod from Sam Rockwell with his portrayal of Wolf of George Clooney, um, especially from Ocean's Eleven. And yes, there's definitely more than a touch of Ocean's Eleven in some of the, the heist things that go on. But it's just really enjoyable. And I was not expecting that at all, especially considering it's a DreamWorks movie and they are patchy at best. Like, I am a huge fan of their um, How to Train Your Dragons movies, especially How to Train Your Dragons 2. Makes me cry like a baby every time um, there's the, <coughs> uh, the stuff with... Uh, dad stoic um and kung fu panda one is still hands down the best origin story for darth vader that ever was not a star wars movie and kung fu panda 2 beautiful great story really really well done but then for all of those things they've got pretty much all the sequels to shrek they have got so many heinous things to the name like uh, shark tail and this just from the pictures just from the stills and the poster kind of looks like oh they're going more cutesy and style over substance but that's not the case um the animation like i said is stand out different and interesting and compelling and the story arc that these guys go on is actually culturally interesting it's about the being tarred with this with the brush and the stereotype expectation and how you can either just accept it and be who everyone thinks you're going to be and you're not going to be surprised or disappointed with how people react or you can choose the often harder route of proving to be yourself 
and working out a way of ingratiating that into society where people see you for you, the good and the bad, for lack of a better descriptor. Um, the delight of it is, the genuine delight of it is Richard Ayoade. He plays a guinea pig. You didn't need to say that. I mean, Richard Ayoade is just always good value. Yes. And <laughs> what they do with Professor Marmalade, and it's obvious what, what's going to happen, but it's played so beautifully that you don't care that you can see it coming. This is a kid's movie. They're not trying to outsmart the smartest people in the room or anything like that. They're just telling a story. But it's still compelling and entertaining. And the way that he, his voice is, is not doing anything different with his voice, except maybe a little bit higher. It's just Richard Iowati, and he just plays it the same way that he has always played every character that he's ever been. And it's just brilliant. It just works. And th this was a one that I just thought, fuck it, I'll, I'll see it. Why not? I'll, it's free on Prime Video. And it's like, okay, I'm happily surprised. Happily surprised by this. Um, all of the characters work really well together. I don't know if they, I don't know what kind of production that they had on it, if they were purposely kind of working, recording together, because you do definitely get, there's a different quality, especially in American and um, voice acting, where, for example, um, in Wes Addison's Fantastic Mr. Fox, they had raw audio where everyone was just playing in the same room. And you can kind of feel it in the snappiness of the line delivery. Kind of feels like they did something very similar or it's fantastic editing and just performers who know how to deliver their characters. Because the relationship between the bad guys and how their, their repartee just is nice and snappy and quick, it speaks to being smartly written and being well performed and it feels genuine so very happy the screenplay here is written by eaton cohen um mm. who's been responsible for some really good stuff and some really bad stuff holmes and watson men in black three haven't seen madagascar but he also wrote idiocracy mm -hmm. which is a fucking great movie he and wrote the screenplay of tropic thunder which is really fucking good. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a whole bunch of um, King of a Hill. Yeah. So, you know, there's a guy who can um, can swing from, you know, terrible to uh, quite good. Um, yeah. But the guy obviously can write when mm. given good source material. In this case, we haven't yeah. read the books, but maybe the books are great. Yeah. But I don't know anything about the books, but I'm curious. I think that the... Um, the uniqueness of the animation style and these characters being likable anti-heroes could very comfortably lend themselves to be a franchise starter for DreamWorks for their new anim for their animation as they go forwards because nothing's happening with Kung Fu, Kung Fu Panda. There's no more um, How to Train Your Dragon except for a TV show set years in the future. There's no Shrek. Um, they kind of need 
a new mantle, and this could potentially be it. So, yeah, very enjoyable. Really, it sounds. I might have to check that out. It's just entertaining. It's it's definitely focused for kids, but it's still smart enough. It's not got the. It doesn't go as far as like the early Pixar stuff of this is for kids and adults. This is definitely for kids, but it's palatable enough and intelligently enough directed that you can just enjoy it and you don't have to pay too much attention, but there's good sight gags in it from time to time. Voice actors really do help make this shine. Yeah. Good voice actors make all the difference. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, for the ridiculous of the sublime, um, mm. uh, it was my weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I, after sitting down and watching um, uh, Clerks 3, Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, airing out the living room from that crap for a while. Um, oh. We decided we needed a palate cleanser, and we decided the palate cleanser normally is something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Having just watched something ridiculous with lighthearted, we went for something a bit different. And mm-hmm. finally, after so many years, I've got around to seeing Parasite. I don't remember if you've seen this, and I think you might have seen it and talked about it in the show a while ago. So mm-hmm. apologies to long term listeners if we're doubling up here, but I finally got around to it. This is the best picture winner. At mm-hmm. the uh, Academy Awards in 2020, uh, for one that, of course, as, as George pointed earlier, Trump got up, up to the arms about it's the first foreign language film, I think, to actually non English, mm-hmm. shall we say, yes. uh, film to non English language film to win Best Picture. Uh, greed and class discrimination threaten newly formed symbiotic relationship between the wealthy Park family and the destitute Kim clan. Uh, mm-hmm. This film is directed by, I think it's fair to say now, the great. Bong mm-hmm. Joon-ho. Um, if you, I mean, the other films you might have seen him from, his Hollywood debut, I believe, was Snowpiercer in 2013, yes. which is quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote this, he directed the super weird Okja. Okja. Netflix, uh, yeah. Netflix, uh, co-written by one of my favorite authors, John Ronson. Um, and he also made a bit of a splash in the early to mid-2000s with The Host. Yes. Uh, the Korean, um, Korea, South Korean horror film. Mm-hmm. This again is a South Korean film. It is set in South Korea. All South Korean actors, um, mm. and in uh, in Korean. So you're going to be reading subtitles, I think. Here, yeah. uh, the plot of the film: We meet the Kim family. So uh, I'm not even. I don't know if I'm going to get these names right. Um, but um, uh, we have four of them: father, mother, son, and daughter. And as the, the synopsis notes they are destitute they are we mm. meet them in their basement apartment moving around trying to hold their phones up in the air trying to find a free wi-fi signal somewhere because mm. their upstairs neighbor put a password on hers and all of their phones have been cut off we then see them proceed to be folding pizza boxes to earn enough for uh, hundreds and hundreds of pizza boxes to earn enough money in order to get their phone switch back on yeah, uh, so they're really, really scratching for it. This mob, uh, the son, I think, is it Ki Ki Wu? Um, uh, Ki Wu, um, yes, Ki Wu. Uh, sorry, Mike, my, my, it's terrible. Um, uh, meets with his friend to, for a, his friend comes, drops by, uh, with a philosopher's stone. I had to Google what they were, or a scholar stone. Um, and they go out for a drink, and he asks him if he could help take a uh, – sorry, asks – through conversation that comes up that he's been tutoring 
uh, a, uh, a young girl who's a member of a wealthy family, the Park family, uh, hmm. and he's going overseas for a while, and he would ask uh, Ki-Woo to fill in for him as this girl's tutor because he trusts Ki-Woo not to crack onto her because he's quite keen on dating this girl when he gets hmm. back from overseas. Ki-Woo says no, no, eventually agrees to tutor her in English and rolls up to the house of the Park, a very um, sumptuous house of a Park family, uh, uh, where he ends up going under the name of Kevin. Um <laughs> And hereby starts what we what the synopsis called the symbiotic relationship. It turns out that they need um, that uh, they need a, a teacher of sorts or an art teacher for uh, the younger the, uh, the youngest child, the Park family's youngest boy, who he, they think is some sort of genius artist. So mm-hmm. Kiwu enlists his sister to come in and help. Uh, Yon Kyo. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and um, and she uh, plays the part. They don't actually tell anybody that they're brother and sister, and they don't tell anybody that she has no qualifications as an art teacher or art therapist. There's actually a great scene where she says, oh, I don't know anything about this. I just Googled art therapy before I came in and, and made the rest of it up. Um, but she's quite successful mm. in taming the youngest Parks, uh, park boy. And the, the, the Mrs. Park, the woman of the house, is, you know, this is actually pretty good. And then it turns out that they need a, they actually engineer a situation where uh, Mr. Park, uh, he's, uh, the man of the house's driver, is mm-hmm. fired by leaving deliberately leaving her underwear in the car where it can be found. And it makes it look like he's been, you know, bringing girls back for a bit of, mm-hmm. um, you know, horizontal folk dancing in the back of a the car there. Um, and... He's um so they end up oh, okay well now we need to drive it and guess what dad used to be a driver so they get him hired as a driver and then they engineer a situation to get the maid of the house fired because mm-hmm. that way they can get mum a job so mm-hmm. all four of them end up working this house despite the fact the parks don't know that all four of them are related and yep. that at least in at least two of these situations they've um specifically engineered the situation where the original person in the job was fired mm. so that the family member could be hired. Um, so we're all pretty sketchy, uh, pretty sketchy family in to get ahead because the Park family being so wealthy, they just basically uh, parasitic relationship. They're sucking off them um, mm-hmm. to survive. Things start to go south, however, when uh, one particular night the, uh, the former maid comes back to the house because she's, forgotten something Mm. bafflingly they let her in and the thing that she's forgotten turns out to be in the basement of a property and that really sets the cat amongst the pigeons and chaos ensues once everybody realizes what it is she's forgotten Mm -hmm. and she realizes what they're up to Mm -hmm. i'm being a little bit vague here because if you are a bit like me, and you haven't seen the film yet, I absolutely do not want to spoil what happens here. I think that's a fair setup. It gives you an idea of what's going on here. Um, and, and the director actually made a plea, I think when it came out, please don't spoil this for people. Now, it's a three-year-old film, so, you know, you've had your chance. But mm-hmm. um, I would like you to experience this somehow 
I went into this completely clean. So when you talked about it a while ago, you obviously did a good job of it, lack of spoilers as well. Um, because I had no idea what was coming in the last act of this film. And this film goes absolutely bonkers in the last act, but in the best possible way. Yes. Like you did not see, you don't see any of this shit coming. Did you see it coming? You've got your superpower. Did you? No, I did not see this coming because it's every single time it cranks it up and cranks it up and cranks it up. And it, it after after the first one and then the second one, it's like, okay, that's, that's not too, that's not too terrible. That's not too scary. Oh, they're getting a bit sinister with installing themselves in this family's life. And then, yeah, the, the maid coming back and then it just keeps on going it's like okay that wh what there's there's more and then the sort of like garden party oh wow um <sighs> this, film is, this film is un <laughs> undoubtedly a masterpiece mm. um it was scandalous that it was overlooked for the acting awards mm -hmm. um in particular the actor who played dad who i'm just gonna quickly look at his uh, name now Song Kang-hong, fucking amazing. Like, yes. The first thing we see him doing in this film is putting together pizza boxes, and he fucks it up. It's mm -hmm. insinuated that they get their pay docs because he fucked up putting together pizza boxes. Um, and where his journey ends? Sorry, it must be very frustrating um, for Tira trying to tiptoe to around it, but um, the subtext of a story. I, I don't mm. think it's mysterious that this is a class criticism. No. Um, that this is this is making a point about the differences between the haves and the have-nots in South Korea. And I think it's fair to say that's probably easily transferable to just about anywhere in the West. Mm -hmm. um, the United States are here in Australia. Um, Bong Joon-ho, when he wrote this, said... He created um, the uh, the character of Ki Woo as getting a job as a tutor because mm. that's the only way he could think of that a family of uh, the Park stature and the Kim stature would actually come in contact with each other. Mm. Um, mm. There's, it's not always particularly subtle about its, its symbolism. Um, there's a scene during a rainstorm where the Kims are running through the city and they end up coming down the stairs, lots of going down a lot, down mm. staircases, down streets, down hills. Mm. And it's it's an obvious metaphor for their descent from the you know the heights of the park house into the shithole of a home, almost literal shithole mm. um, of a home that they they share in their basement. And you know, but the it's not it's made not subtle about making its um mm. its points there. What is interesting about this is who is the parasite exactly? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the obvious answer is the Kims of a parasite. So you have the ones who yes. have latched onto the Park family and they've engineered the situation where all four of them are, uh, you know, making a living off this Park family. And, you know, their well-being now relies on the well-being of the Park family. Mm -hmm. But it's not that clear. Mm -hmm. You know, all four of the members of the Park family have pretty empty lives at the start of this film all four and seek out and need a companion in their life. Mm -hmm. So the rich quite commonly could be reserved, viewed as 
the, the truly parasitic ones, members of society, you know, who, you know, set up high and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. benefit from the labours of the, the thousands and millions of people who couldn't possibly dream of a life, you know, yeah. lived near the fluctuate. I love the fact that mm, two-thirds of the way through the film before the fine lack we were just sort of hinting at there, the Kim family are basically con artists. Yeah. They're basically con artists who have con this family who've done nothing to anybody yep. into, you know, in, uh, into employing all for them. They've organised for two good people, hardworking people, honest people, to be fired from their jobs mm -hmm. to, so that they can have them instead. And yet you're still rooting for the Kim family. Yeah. At least I was. <laughs> and yeah. like, I found nice. myself going, hang on a second, but they're bad. These are bad people. Why yeah. do I want them to survive? Why do I want them to be okay? Why do I want them to see them? This as you sort of said, when he ratchets the tension up and I, why do I want to see them get out of this situation okay? You know, mm. why am I rooting against other things uh, in, this, in this picture who are, you know, perhaps you're not, as bad as the Kim family are. That's a work of genius for me. Yes. 100%. 100%. Can't argue with any single thing you've said there. And then you you haven't even talked about the the production of it and the literal like there was there was a masterclass breakdown of Parasite the movie talking about how it was framed and characters being on very separate boxes, like you, you in your box, me in another box, symbolizing the different statues and how they slowly get the Kim family slowly get closer to the edge of those boxes before they break through and invade and things like that. And it's that visual storytelling that goes into this. It's, it's not just thinking about the the literal narrative story that we're going through, but that visual design, that color usage that is just stunning everything about it was meticulously designed to tell you a story and the story that you versus the story that you're seeing are quite different and that's part of the reason why i think that you do empathize and want the kings to win because they're the ones who are trying to break out of these shitty boxes and we are being shown that and told that without words just purely by visuals, just purely by where they set the camera up. It's so like, oh, there's a window frame there. That's just going to separate them for now. And so you are being told two stories at the same time to reinforce reinforce your opinion one way or the other. Stein. The guy is a master storyteller. Mm. He's a master filmmaker. Mm. Uh, I can't wait to see what he does next. I mean, I remember his Oscar speech. He talked about... In film school, he had to study the films of Martin Scorsese, who mm -hmm. he'd just beaten for an Oscar. I think it was The Irishman. might have been the film. Yeah, yeah I think it was The Irishman. And I think he also specifically called out Quentin Tarantino, what a fan of his he was, who was, mm -hmm. I believe, up for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that year. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we he doesn't have a track record yet no. of either of those two filmmakers, in fairness. But in my humble opinion as as a captain nobody who's never made a film of his own we are witnessing a filmmaker of that quality i think he yeah. is fair to call him a master filmmaker now master storyteller his next project is a film called mickey seven just based on a book mm -hmm. about uh it sounds class uh, related again mm -hmm. um 
then he has a an animated project apparently a Bong Joon-ho animated project i cannot wait to see what he does with animation yeah yeah like dare we say could there be Hayao Miyazaki uh you know Bong Joon-ho crossover i mean obviously there's absolutely no indication that's what it is i'm just, I'm just fanboying here a little bit you know like the master animated meets you know the the master storyteller filmmaker but um I don't know a lot of animation out of South Korea. Uh, have you come across any in your travels? There's a lot of animation studios in South Korea. For example, a lot of the later series of Futurama and uh, Disenchantment on Netflix. And I think um, maybe even uh, The Legend of Ang came out of Studio Mia, which I believe is uh, a South Korean um, animation house. They have got skill they know how to deliver quality animation in very different styles as well um so i think that whatever we see is going to be particularly interested what i'm interested in is the potential beyond just the standard animation for example this christmas we have got guillermo del toro's stop motion animation of pinocchio which looks sublime from the trailer and is Guillermo del Toro so I'm going to watch it and I'm probably going to really enjoy it and it's let's just put it this way there's only up from what Disney did with the Tom Hanks Pinocchio that they released um, earlier this year <laughs> so the the idea of him doing any kind of animation is exciting to me because it's about he already uses every pixel of the frame to tell story and that is the that is the watermark symbol of mastery for animated studios they use every single frame because they're literally building every single fucking frame he's already doing that on a story level this could be really fucking good <laughs> so if you're like me and you've been putting it off for whatever reason, I, I literally remember at the start of a pandemic putting it on my to watch list on Prime or something like that mm. and never getting around to it. Um, it might seem like hard work because it's par it's subtitles, mm. but please give it a try. It's well worth it. The thing that I'm kind of interested in, it's kind of obscenely, is if they would try and what the end result would be if they tried to do a western translation of it well hbo apparently have commissioned a series based on parasite interesting which i believe the idea is it will be based in the parasite world but not the characters and the um events in the film interesting it would be really interesting if they had the balls to go you know what we're just going to keep this set in South Korea. Um, that? Um, an HBO produced South Korean filmed movie being mass released. Bong Joon-ho's Parasite HBO series is an original story set in films universe, not a remake. It's an original story that lives in the same world. Adam McKay, I believe, is the man responsible for the series. At least this was as of the time of the story uh, about a year and a half ago. So we got, he and Adam McKay don't look up, I believe. Mm. So, yeah. Um, amongst other things. The big okay. short, vice, that sort of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting, interesting choice. Well, we'll see what happens with that, but I'm so glad that you finally got around to seeing Parasite because oh, so pure, gold. pure gold. Now, the last thing that I'm going to spend just two minutes talking about because it is not worth any more time than that, and it's Halloween year period, is Hocus Pocus 2 on Disney+. Plus. This is one of the better releases straight to Disney+, Plus that um, Disney have produced, but at the same time, it's entirely unnecessary and entirely oh yeah hocus pocus was all right and everyone's they've basically just done that again it's like okay cool i think the first one was definitely better the special effects in this are fine um bet midler as minifred um she's cool and uh, sarah jessica parker coming back it's nice to see her actually putting some energy into a role and clearly she loves this role because it's the most acting I've seen her do in probably two decades. Um, beyond that, it is completely forgettable. Did you like the original? Yeah, it was all right <laughs> for, for what it was. <laughs> it was fine, but it didn't need a sequel and it still doesn't. <laughs> well, everything needs a sequel if someone's prepared to pay to watch it. No, no, not everything needs a prequel. Not everything needs a sequel. Some things are deliciously similar. How else would we have found out how Han Solo got the fluffy dice? I know, for one. I mean, I was awake at night worrying about that one. Don't start with me, man. Don't start <laughs> with me. Anyway, I think that's, that's a show, right? That's, that's a show. show. Yeah, that's the show. Um, but, you know, like we said, a big show, but we managed to pack in a whole chunk of movies. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. If you talk about the three separate Star Trek movies, ten movie topics and TV topics in one show in two hours and 13 minutes, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to wrap it up there so that we don't take up any more of your time this week. But thank you so much for joining us for episode 161 of the Armchair Producers, where we talked about Mystery Men, our chain movie of the week. Travis has chosen... Hopefully, the still delightful Morads for next week. Um, available pretty much everywhere on streaming services around the globe. Um, I talked about the finales for She-Hulk and Rings of Power with very varied opinions on those ones. We talked about the Trek Respective. The, uh, it's the Kelvin universe, right? Yeah, the Kelvinverse. The Kelvinverse, um, which ended with... Nine out of ten result for Star Trek Beyond. Um, we talked about Clerks 3 and the bad guys, Parasite, and just a quick little um, eh, whatever for Hocus Pocus 2. Thank you so much for joining us. As Travis did say last time, yes, you can you can buy my book, Prime Video. Um, I am officially a paid author now, by the way. <laughs> well, I, I have received residuals from the book for the first time ever. You too can contribute to that. Yes, please. Um, I need money. Um, but yes, the big thing for this month is my Black Dog Walk for men uh, mental health awareness. Please go to Facebook and follow the links to sponsor as much as you can, from dollar to $1,000. Um, over the weekend, I went camping and ended up walking about 16 and a half kilometers in one day just to get my numbers going there. That reminds me, I need to update those on the website. But 
yeah, this is a really good cause. And as we talked about earlier in the show, it is something that both myself and Travis really do try and help um, you know, promote as much as we can because it is very important. But thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. We will see you same time, same place next week. Good night. Good night.